It's a peaceful protest. We walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you gotta you gotta listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are gonna look back. Our kids are gonna look back at this and say, "You were a part of that." I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the '60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We gotta keep pushing forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Back here again, Forward Progress. Give my guy Jax a break today. I got my guy Amin El Hassan to join the program. I am Kirk Morrison. He's Amin El Hassan. This is Forward Progress. Got a great show for you lined up. Obviously, we got to talk about, we lost an icon this week. So we're going to get a chance to talk about the great Bill Russell. Uh, coming up in just a, I'll say about 10 minutes, conversation with Jason Reed. He's the senior NFL writer over at the Anscape. He's got a new book coming out, The Rise of the Black Quarterback. What does this mean for America? So I can't wait to get uh, his thoughts on his new book. But uh, let's start here, Amin. Um, Bill Russell mm-hmm. uh, passed away, age of 88. Um, when you hear Bill Russell, you hear about a man who won, what, 11 championships. That's right. They gave him two more because he was a player coach. But just the name Bill Russell for you, just his impact on the NBA, uh, your thoughts on the great Bill Russell. Excellence. There's only one word to describe it. Excellence. And that describes his life on and off the court. And, uh, you know, we do this a lot when people pass away. We say he was a great athlete, but he was an even greater person. And it can feel trite sometimes. But in the case of Bill Russell, when you look at his exploits and his contributions to the civil rights movement, to the betterment of uh, black people in this country, um, inequality and you know basically doing things that impact us as a country right his list of accomplishments and the people he's been around and influenced in turn is remarkable if i if i just told you that part of it you didn't know anything about bill russell and i told you just that part you're like wow what an amazing life this guy has led and i said oh by the way he also might be the greatest winner in the history of team sports (laughs) <laughs> right, that it's almost like you know how they say Kobe Bryant, you could have two Hall of Fame careers, one yeah. when he's wearing number eight, one when he's wearing number twenty four. That's that's Bill Russell, but it's like a Hall of Fame career as a civil rights icon, activist, yeah, or an activist, mm-hmm. and a, a Hall of Fame career as a basketball player. That that's how great he was. Oh yeah, very. Yeah, uh, you you hit it on on the head there. Is his work as an activist, being a guy who people knew. I mean, when you stand six feet ten. Yeah, you, you can't hide. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about it, born back on February 12th, 1934, Bill Russell born in Monroe, Louisiana. And then his family migrated west mm-hmm. to my hometown. And this is where it hits hard for me, hit home for me, because he moved to Oakland, California. Mm-hmm. And he went to the high school that I was supposed to go to. But mom was like, nah, we got, you can't go to the high school in the hood. We're going to take you up to the hill, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? So, uh, But he attended McClyman's High School. And he became... Uh, the legend, you know, Bill Russell, when he got to University of San Francisco, USF, mm-hmm. won back-to-back national titles and um, had an opportunity to go to the NBA. He wasn't drafted to the Boston Celtics. People forget that he was drafted by the St. Louis Hawks. Yep. 
So I think that that's the cool part sometimes is that when you always think of Bill Russell, you just think of the championships, the Celtics and how things were just, you know, came easy to him. But this was a dude that had to work and had to grind. No one ever expected this career for the kid that came from out of Oakland, California. There's been so many things that I've, you know, either learned or found out about over the last couple of days. Uh, Things like, uh, okay, so Bob Ryan tweeted this a few years ago, actually, but it resurfaced. Bill Russell was 21-0 in Mm -hmm. winner-take-all scenarios. That's including NCAA tournament, (laughs) the Olympics, and and, uh, game sevens and and game fives in NBA playoffs. 21-0. He never lost, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Bill Russell uh, was a world-class high jumper who had awful form. (laughs) Uh, He competed against Johnny Mathis. Yes, that Johnny Mathis in high school at high jump. Uh, Bill Russell, uh, what was the other one? It it was just the most bizarre stat ever. Oh, here you go. So we talk about the tradition of the Celtics winning and how awesome they were. Well, before Bill Russell joined the Celtics, Bob Cousy was 10-17 and in his NBA playoff career. Mm -hmm. Bill Russell gets there. Obviously, they go on this magical run. Now, now, Kirk, did you know, you know, we know how great they were when he was on the court. Do you know Correct. he missed 52 games in his NBA career uh, in the regular season, in those 13 seasons? Do you know how the Celtics did in those 52 games that he missed? Please tell me that they, they won now, at least half of them. Now, mind you, this is a, a roster that boasted Hall of Famer Hall upon of Hall of Famer upon oh, yeah. Hall of Famer. They were 26 and 26 when Bill Russell didn't play. So it's not a stretch to say it ain't a Celtics mystique. It's a Bill Russell mystique Mm. that did that. And and like I said, you know, this is the basketball portion. And I said, oh, by the way, also, he was fighting for civil rights and, and having his house vandalized and, and having to stay, you know, drive an extra two hours to stay at a motel that would take them and, and eat at a restaurant that would serve them and all this extra stuff. While he was doing that, he was the most uh, amazing winner, prolific winner in the history of team sports in this country. Yeah. And he loved the NBA and was still around any NBA event. Bill Russell was going to be there. His number six is retired with the Boston Celtics. His number six at USF is retired. The NBA's most valuable player award for the NBA Finals is named after Bill Russell. We know the last winner was that was Steph Curry of the Golden State Warriors. And I ask you, Amin, is, is, is that enough for Bill Russell? Because he's such an icon of the game. Is that enough? Or obviously you, you see it sort of trending now. Do, do we retire the number six in the NBA? Because he is the outside of the logo. Yeah. When you think of what you um, inspire you know, or, or aspire to be, Mm-hmm. It's Bill Russell. We want what the career that Bill Russell had. Yeah, I think, you know, I said this other day, I think he might be the most properly rated player in the history of the NBA. Mm. Because even when you hear guys say about, oh, they're playing against plumbers and firemen back then, <laughs> right. they're never talking about Bill Russell when they say Correct. that. Oh, yeah. And you see how to this, you know, he was going to the finals and all-star weekends this whole time. I think this last finals, he, he and, uh, and it makes sense now as his health was deteriorating, 
was the first time I didn't see him hand that trophy right. to the finals MVP. Uh, but he's been around, and you see when the when players see him, they run to him, they confide, in, they they talk to him, they ask him questions, they ask him advice. Uh, so his respect level within the player community, even the current players, was always at the utmost highest. His respect level with the media was at the highest because everyone kind of understood what he represented and what he did. And you know, for my money, if I wanted an award named after me. I want the finals MVP. Yeah. Because this is the one saying, hey, the, the, the part that matters the most, right. th- this guy won it, right? You can keep your Maurice Pauldloff MVP <laughs> trophy. You can keep your Red Auerbach Coach of the Year trophy. All those guys are regular season trophies. But this one, we know, other than Jerry West, the very first winner of the finals MVP, we know that this means almost unanimously, this means your team won. And that's what Bill Russell was about. There is no more fitting award to have named after uh, someone than the finals MVP being named after Bill Russell. Bill Russell, man, he's gone dead at the age of 88, but he has left a lasting legacy that will go on for many, many years to come. I I got one more thing. Like like I said, the last couple of days have been pretty eye-opening in terms of things that you learn and, and you find out. This was a quote from Tommy Heinsohn. Tommy Heinsohn, the Hall of Famer, played for the Celtics, was a Celtics broadcaster, played mm-hmm. with Russell on a bunch of those championship teams, took over head coach after Russell retired from co- coaching the Celtics. And this was in a 1999 Sports Illustrated feature on Bill Russell. The quote is, look, all I know is the guy won two NCAA championships, 50-some college games in a row, the 56 Olympics, then he came to Boston and won 11 championships in 13 years, and they named the fucking tunnel after Ted Williams. That, ladies and gentlemen, yeah. that's a quote. Mm. <laughs> the late Tommy Heinsohn. And, and I'll, add it, I'll add this, because obviously Boston has been in the news of late because of comments from other players to say uh, the environment of playing in Boston mm-hmm. was not, I guess, con- conducive of what, an environment should be whether mm-hmm. you're playing baseball, basketball. It doesn't matter any sport. It just say, hey, it's a different kind of uh, an arena. It's a different kind of crowd. And to think that Bill Russell probably endured a lot off the court, and yet he was able to still be successful on the court, having to deal with once you once you took that Celtics jersey off, or you walked out of that, out of that arena, he was still a black man. Now he yeah. was a Celtic on the court, but off the court, he was a black man, so can't even imagine what he had so, to deal with. So uh, he would often say he encountered incredible racism, uh, including having his house vandalized, broken into, mm-hmm. uh, people defecating in his bed, uh, spray painting the N word in his house, and you know he's got a family, he's got kids. Yeah. Um, he uh, he famously said when they said how did it feel winning another championship for the city of Boston? He said I didn't win a championship for the city of Boston, I won it for the for the Celtics. I play for the Celtics. I don't play for Boston, right? Um, to the point where I, I interviewed Robert Parrish on Monday, I believe, uh, the day after his passing, and we asked him, you know, what were his impressions upon coming to Boston? Did he talk to Bill Russell? And he said, yeah, because I didn't want to come to Boston. I heard the stories, and I, and I, I was wary about coming to Boston because of what happened to Bill Russell. So, again, put that on 
top of that resume when I said he's doing all this stuff and he's the greatest winner of all time. And the place where he's supposed to be the most beloved and the most welcome, even some of the most racist parts of this country, usually for the guy that plays for their team, they put the racism on hold or whatever. He was in, he was facing some of the worst stuff from the hometown fans. That he he was winning championships for their favorite team. It, it just it, it saddens me, but also he stands as an example of what you can accomplish in adverse conditions, in the most adverse conditions. He didn't just uh, you know compete or be good. He was excellent, the most excellent among us. He was an NBA champion. He was a college champion. He was an Olympian. Also received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. You talk about the accomplishments galore, but that's who he was. And here is Bill Russell sharing some stories to Bill Simmons about the civil rights movement years. In the year 68, such a tumultuous year in American history. Well, the reason that was important was it had nothing to do with basketball. Yeah. It had to do with being an athlete with social conscience. You are a superb athlete and have intense pride in that, but to be judged on other things, too. Yes, you know, um, it's something that says we see you as a man. Rather than this is an athlete or a performer, this is a man. And uh, this is what this award means to me. In 1967, Muhammad Ali risked his career by refusing to be drafted to fight in Vietnam. America's finest black athletes stood by him, with Bill Russell leading the way. Look at some of the personalities from that decade. You and Ali and Jim Brown and Kareem, like these are some of the most awful athletes ever. Sure. And you're all there at the same time. We came out of friendship to Muhammad Ali. And uh, I know that we wanted to find out from him. You know, you, you read the papers, you see on television and all this kind of stuff, what is going on. What I did, or tried to do, was support all these guys. And you were also the first African-American athlete who was outspoken and talked about stuff that really nobody was talking about in the 60s. Like, you were the first one. Do you think that you will get some white kids to play basketball with Negro kids? I think so. I don't see why not. My kids uh, play with white kids, and nobody got hurt yet. Jackie Robinson was a hero to all of us. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if you know that I was a uh, pallbearer at Jackie Robinson's funeral. And I had enormous respect for him. But my attitude was that Jackie took us from point A to point B. And I want to go from point B to point C. It was my inheritance from Jackie to do things, to seize that opportunity. Go back to my childhood. When we first moved into the projects, my mother was unpacking, and I was sitting on the steps, and these four kids ran by, and one of them slapped me as he was going by. So I did what nine-year-old kids do. I went home and told my mother, I went upstairs and told my mother, that guy hit me. She grabbed the house keys and grabbed me, and we went all through the project looking for those guys. And she said, these are the guys? I said, yes, ma'am. Well, you're gonna fight every one of them one at a time. It was five of them. I lost three and won two. <laughs> and so I go home, crying, and she says, don't cry. You did what you had to do. You had to stand up for yourself. 
in that lesson you just took through the 50s and 60s? The things that I did was I never let anybody, as my mother used to call it, run over me. I left the hotel and I went to a, a restaurant down the street <clears throat> and uh, uh, the proprietor asked me what I wanted. I said, this is a restaurant, isn't it? I'd like to get something to eat. He told me no. We played a game in, uh, we were booked to play a game in Lexington, Kentucky. Casey went down to the restaurant in the hotel we were staying and they would not serve him. I decided and the other guys decided to go along with me not to play. So I told Ray we were leaving. I said, because it's important to me that everybody everywhere knows that the black players decided they'll stand up for themselves. And that was it? Yeah. Although one of the newspapers in St. Louis wrote that the black players embarrassed the Celtics and they should be suspended and fined. Martin Luther King Jr. was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee, shot in the face as he stood alone on the balcony of his hotel room. We're talking about 1968 and uh, when Martin Luther King got assassinated. What do you remember now? It's been almost 45 years since that happened. Well, you know, I had met him at the March of Washington. And you were there for the I Have a Dream speech? Yes, yes. In fact, I was invited to go on the stage, but I respectfully declined because they had been working on that for more than a year, and I had done anything. And I didn't think it was right or fair to me go up on the stage and say, see, I'm one of the guys. Yeah. And so uh, I sat in the first row. So you get the news that, that he's been killed. You're about to play the Sixers in the 68 playoffs. Well, they asked us, do you want to call the game off? And someone pointed out that 12 or 13,000 people on the streets with emotions off the chart. And if we play the game, they'd give the folks a chance to cool down. And that's the reason we had the game. So you're glad you had the game in retrospect? It seems like it was the right idea. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how I feel about that. We, we did what we thought was right at that time. President of the United States said in 40 years he thought a Negro could be elected president. When the atmosphere is, is as it is today, what happened for 400 years? A few young people here that would like to be president of the United States. If you'd like to, don't give it up. You don't have to give it up. Because in spite of everything, I want you to remember one thing. You can do anything that you want to do, if you want to do it bad enough. Thank you very much. Bill Russell, the man, is someone who stood up for the rights and dignity of all men. He marched with King. He stood by Ali. When a restaurant refused to serve the black Celtics, he refused to play in the scheduled game. But he kept on focusing on making the teammates who he loved better players and made possible the success of so many who would follow. You received the Medal of Freedom which is the highest honor that an American citizen can get. I feel honored to be on the same stage with the president. All the stuff you fought for in the 60s and then at least at that moment, that's well, very cool too. Uh, he, that's what he said to me. He said, thanks for the inspiration. He said that I was one of the reasons he was able to become president. Mr. Bill Russell, dead at the age of 88.
we'll take a break. We talk without the, we just talked a little basketball and the passing of Bill Russell, but football, it's on the mind. Training camps open all around the National Football League, and we're starting to see more and more black quarterbacks around the NFL. My guy, Jason Reed, who's with the uh, Anscape NFL senior writer, he'll talk about his new book, The Rise of the Black Quarterback. What does this mean for America? Coming up next here on Forward Progress. You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius XM Radio. Joined now by the senior NFL writer of the Anscape, the undefeated, Mr. Jason Reed. You can reach him on Twitter at JReedESPN. Uh, Jason, you, you got some uh, got some things going, I see. Right? Yeah. You got some things going. Uh, his new book, The Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America. And Jason, I want to start right there. What does it mean for America, the rise of the black quarterback? Well, you know, quarterback is the ultimate leadership position. It's a uniquely American leadership position. Let's step away from football for a second. We talk about corporate America. In corporate America, if you are leading a major project for a company, if you're the team leader, people say, well, he's our quarterback. If you're you know, going in for a medical procedure, your doctor's your quarterback. He's got to get you through that procedure. And so when we think of quarterback, we think of the smartest the toughest, the best leader, the the person who inspires, okay? We also think about masculinity when we think about the quarterback. So if black men are excluded from playing quarterback because the feeling is is that they are inherently uh, inferior, well, that says a lot about how black men and black people, uh, it says a lot about how far they can go in this country as well. So when we talk about the rise of the black quarterback in, in the NFL, what we're talking about, especially in, this, in the previous century, how black people have risen up and excelled and achieved once they were given opportunities. And we see the same thing in America. We see, you know, captains of industry are black. We see, you know, the you know, black doctors, uh, black, black lawyers. Um, heck, we had a black president. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the rise of the black quarterback in the NFL mirrors the rise of black people in this country in the last century and this one when opportunities were finally given we showed what we could do mm-hmm. you know jason back in 2019 you pioneered the undefeated season-long digital series on the emerging prominence of african-american quarterbacks in the national football league a critically acclaimed piece the year of black quarterback series so you've seen this sort of evolution of the black quarterback for a while now you've watched how these young players have come in and they start to look like me and you more so than they look like that in years past prior. What have you seen in this sort of rise as now black quarterbacks are not having to be considered to switch positions to go play receiver or go play running back. No, you can play this position. Yeah. You know, just everything you just said right there that, you know, it used to be that black, black, college quarterbacks they just their position was just changed and it wasn't something that was even uh, you know spoken about it was just understood that if you play quarterback in college and you're black you're going to become a, a wide receiver in the NFL you're going to become mm-hmm. a cornerback in the NFL well you know that is no longer the case when you talk about these young superstars in the game you know they stood on the shoulders of the pioneers of the right. of the Doug Williamses the Warren Moons the Randall mm-hmm. Cunninghams and now we're at a point 
where the NFL has had to acknowledge that, okay, these, these black players can help us win. And if they help us win, they can help us make money. Okay, so if you're going to help me make money, well, I'm going to put you out there. And what we've seen is, is that these, these superstars of today, you know, Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, uh, you know, a guy like a Kyler Murray, or all of these guys have the ability to succeed and thrive at that position. In the past, they wouldn't have an opportunity to play it. So it's an acknowledgement by the league that we have to be in a different place because these guys can help us make money. I'm glad you mentioned that name. Uh, one of the names, Kyler Murray, young black quarterback. But we talked about it on this show here a week ago, me and Jack said, Jason, and we talked about the uh, the addendum in the contract for Kyler Murray that had an independent study clause. And one of the things that you've talked about before, Jason, and in all, all of your writing when it comes to the black quarterback is there was always, and I quote, a perception that the black quarterback lacked worth ethic intelligence to comprehend a playbook they couldn't lead white men or summon the toughness to play through pain when i saw that addendum in the kyler murray contract which has since been taken back by the arizona cardinals i immediately thought about what you talked about what you've written about this only pertains to what it seems the black quarterback not necessarily this wouldn't be in a white quarterback's contract yeah, the Cardinals really stepped into it on this one. It, it, it didn't, for so many reasons, it didn't make sense to include that thing. Right. And, you know, the best case scenario, the best possible light you can put on it is, look, they guaranteed the guy $160 million, so they obviously believe in him. But maybe someone or multiple people high up in that organization thought generally they're okay with college study habits, but we'd like the problem to just do a little bit more because he could be not just a Pro Bowl quarterback, but he could be maybe the best quarterback in the league. The problem is you don't put something like that into the contract because with the way black quarterbacks have historically been viewed in this league, right. a lot of people are going to see something like this. You see, you know, they don't study. Matter of fact, I talked to Warren Moon about this just the other day. And what Warren says, like, yeah, it, people can use that to say, well, what did we tell you? They don't study. You got to force them to work. You know, that, that narrative, the black quarterbacks are lazy and stupid. Um, it's a very unfortunate situation because I don't think you guarantee someone $160 million if you think they're lazy and stupid. You know, unfortunately, the Cardinals should have just gone to him and his agent and like, look, he's doing a great job, but we want him to take it to another level. So can he just put in a little more work, you know, later on, right. something like that. And they took it out because of the backlash. Mm -hmm. And now Kyler Murray has to address this situation and say, hey, do you really think I could succeed if I didn't study? So the Cardinals messed up, his agent messed up. And, you know, you know what happened. Like, they, they put this thing in there and nobody's, like, focusing on it. You know what, you know what they're focusing on? $160 million. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, it, but it was a mistake by the Cardinals, and now this is going to cast a shadow over Kyler his whole career. He is Jason Reed. He's the senior NFL writer at the Anscape. He's got a new book, Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America. At what point, Jason, do you think – those views changed on the black quarterback. Is there a can you? Is there a specific person? Is there a specific time where you felt that the people who make the decisions, and I'm talking about the owners, when they make a decision, hey, I want that at quarterback now. Was there a point or a time? Do you think that 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 archaic thinking sort of changed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, we can point to the to that '87 Super Bowl where Doug Williams lit up the Denver Broncos became the first black quarterback to start in the Super Bowl and also right. 
won the Super Bowl MVP. That that was one big moment. Correct. And the fact that Joe Gibbs, the legendary coach of the Washington, they were Washington Redskins at the time. Mm-hmm. The fact that Joe Gibbs did that, like Joe Gibbs giving, you know, putting Doug Williams in that position, that resonated throughout the league. I mean, a lot of people like, well, Joe Gibbs believes this. Okay, that's something. But although there were moments, I think the main thing is, is that, you know, by the 19, by the late 1980s, early 1990s, the NFL now was this 800-pound gorilla. Right. It was it, it was eclipsing if it had not completely eclipsed Major League Baseball as a national pastime. And the money had gotten so big by the late 1980s, early 1990s, that these teams no longer could afford to overlook anybody who could help them win at the most important position. So that's why, you know, you see Warren Moon come down from Canada after initially not being drafted. He After a, a rough start in Houston, he gets it going and is on this roll of winning Pro Bowls. At the same time, Randall Cunningham is becoming the ultimate weapon in Philadelphia. So you had this, this convergence of forces, the money becoming so big, the pressure on coaches and general managers to win, or you ain't going to be in that job very long. Right. And black quarterbacks, specifically Doug Williams, excuse me, specifically Warren Moon and Randall Cunningham at this time, showing that, whoa, you know, 1990, Joe Montana wins the, MVP, the, the NFL AP MVP award. Right. Finishing second and third are Randall Cunningham and Warren Moon. That type of thing isn't lost on these owners. These team owners are like, all right, well, now. And so then as we get deeper into the 90s, by 1999, three black quarterbacks, Donovan McNabb, uh, Dante, Culpe- Dante Culpepper, and Achilles Smith are all drafted. And now we have an acknowledgement going into the 2000s. Okay, this is a thing now. Yeah, you mentioned MVPs. And you think about it, of the last seven MVPs, Three of them are black. Cam Newton in 2015, uh, Patrick Mahomes 2018, Lamar Jackson in 2019. And remember, Aaron Rodgers won it back to back. So really, if you think about it, it's really only been of the last six MVPs, uh, the people who have won, three of them have been black. And I thought you made a great point, too, is that the black quarterback isn't just for the NFL. It's for pop culture. It's for it's one of the most influential positions in all of sports, I get it. Basketball, you don't have a helmet on, right? You're right. out there. Everybody sees you. You shoe off. Baseball has been trending more into the Latin American, uh, the Latin descent, right? But when it comes to the black quarterback in football, is there a more influential position in sports? No, it's the ultimate position in team sports. Mm. And and when you talk about what quarterback represents in, in, in sports, I mean, a quarterback he is the guy who inspires everyone around him. He's the, he's the leader in the NFL. He's the guy who makes the most money too. He has the most off, off the field endorsements. I mean, this is, you are the guy if you play quarterback. And if you're, if you're a franchise quarterback in the NFL, if you know, there are a lot of quarterbacks who are just guys, but if you're a franchise quarterback, no, you, you are at a level above everybody else. Mm. (laughs) He's Jason Reed, the, uh, Senior NFL writer over at the Anscape at J Reed ESPN. You know, one of the other things I was looking at over the last couple of weeks is that I guess it's really prominent right now with a black quarterback is Lamar Jackson, who's sort of taken into his own as his own agent. He doesn't have an agent and he doesn't have a contract extension just yet. And people are just saying, see, this is one of the reasons why when you give them power, this is what happens. Does this probably change the narrative or how will the narrative change on what may eventually happen with Lamar and will this be something that we see continue on 
Well, you know, the Lamar situation, you're absolutely right. It's, it's Everybody's talking about this right now. And he's a guy who, I mean, he, he won the NFL AP MVP award and was only the second unanimous winner among quarterbacks. Yeah. He and Tom Brady are the only two guys who've ever done that. His contract situation has not been worked out. You know, right. Deshaun Watson has the most guaranteed money at $230 million. Deshaun Watson doesn't have an MVP award. So when you look at it, you say to yourself, well, Lamar should be the highest paid quarterback now in terms of at least guaranteed money. But this contract situation with the way he plays, there's a lot of questions about, okay, is this thing going to get done? And there's a lot swirling around him because he is a black quarterback. You know, right. when, and especially because remember when he entered the league, it, it was a, a throwback to an era where, you know, we, we, we thought we were gone. We thought those days were gone. People were saying, well, he's not a quarterback. You know, he's, he's a wide receiver. He, he can't play quarterback. And some very successful, accomplished NFL people were saying that publicly. So Lamar represents, and it's why he's one of my favorite chapters in the book, Lamar represents so much about where we've come with this whole black quarterback thing and where we are now. And I, I totally agree with you. Depending on what happens with this contract situation, this is going to be a discussion that's going to continue. And who he is and the type of player he is, the style of play, that's going to continue to discuss a lot as well. well I kind of want to pivot here just a little bit, Jason, because you've got the amazing book, The Rise of the Black Quarterback, what this means for America. But I want to pivot to just a little bit because you've done a lot of work in talking in the wake of player protests, uh, the discord among players. Uh, the social justice fight still in the NFL. And we got news earlier this week uh, about Brian Flores, the former head coach of the Miami Dolphins, who said, I, I got factual evidence that I had an owner tell me that he wanted me to tank. He wanted me to lose games and even offered me money. And it, it's 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 something that right now seems to keep getting lost. And I just want to paraphrase this a little bit because um, Brian Flores says that he feels like his words have been um, diminished a little bit. That they, they, they people are kind of glossing over what he said and basically saying that an owner was just joking around. What's been your thoughts on what's taking place and what's been handed down by the NFL? Yeah, well, the league has handed down disciplinary action, and the league has said that right. you know that they 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 find what he what he said credible. Mm. The the problem is you know as we know this this lawsuit that Brian Flores has filed. What we really need to have happen here is that the NFL is not successful in its bid to move the case to arbitration. Because mm -hmm. if the case is moved to arbitration, the stuff, a, a lot of the stuff that Brian Flores has said is just going to, it's not going to become public. We need everything with Brian, Brian Flores in this situation to be public. We need a trial so we can see what his evidence is on everything else that he's alleging and how the NFL is going to come back with it. Because I get what he's saying that, you know, even though the NFL acknowledges what he said is true, it's like, okay, the, the impact of it isn't like he, something more, people should be feeling a more of a certain type of way about it. And they're not. And again, you know, Stephen Ross is a, is the owner and right. owners are billionaires and very powerful. That's why even more than just what came down this week, the bigger thing is this case cannot go to arbitration because if the judge over the case allows it to go to arbitration, all this stuff becomes secret. It's all, it, it much stuff is going to be much harder to get out. And at the end of the day, Roger Goodell is somebody he, he appoints can rule on this. Well, Roger Goodell is paid by the owners. 
Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it's a clear, <laughs> it's a clear conflict of interest, or at least it's, it's a clear appearance of a conflict of interest. So yeah, I get what he's saying. And even, even more importantly, moving forward, if, if this judge rules in favor of the NFL and moves the, the, the lawsuit to arbitration, Brian Flores' words will even be more diminished. Just a couple more minutes here with Jason Reed at J Reed ESPN. Um, you are a native New Yorker, but raised in Southern California, graduated from the University of Southern California's School of Journalism. But you spent seven years as a beat reporter for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And, you know, so much we talk about race and sports here, but we lost an icon. We lost the great Vin Skelly, who was a voice of baseball, but I think he was a voice for all races. You know what I mean? In terms of when you heard Vin Scully talk, I didn't I didn't see race when he spoke. I thought he spoke for a whole entire generation. I know that he touched you as a young beat reporter, a young up and coming writer. Um, I saw you had some thoughts about Vin Scully. Just wanted you to share them with our audience because of what and how Vin Scully influenced you. Yeah, thanks, man. I, I really appreciate the way you put that. Um, a very, a very kind, gracious man who you know, when you, a lot of times people who are that big, you know, people who have had that much success aren't the kindest people in the world, but right. he really was. And, you know, when I was a young beat writer at the Los Angeles times, just starting out, you know, it was a, it was a big job for me and a big promotion. And, you know, I, I'll be honest, I was really nervous about it. And he was very kind to me. And, you know, I think when you have young people who encounter like people who are like superstars and people right. who, you know, are at the top of whatever field, you know, a little kindness can go a long way. You know, you never know how much you can touch someone and help someone just by being kind to them in a, in a moment. And um, I totally, agree, I totally agree with what you said about not seeing race or, or you know hearing race right. when Vince Scully would talk. Um, and I can say that you know, having talked to him privately, like what you saw on camera or what you listened to. Uh, you know, through the radio or through your TV, that's who the man was. And it's always a bigger loss when you lose good people who also do a great job. So, yeah, um, thank you for, you know, allowing me to to speak a little bit about that because the time I was around Ben earlier in my career, it it was a really great time for me. And, um, you know, I I definitely feel for his family and, you know, it's, it's a huge loss. All right, Jason, I'm going to get you out of here, man. Appreciate your time. But uh, The Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America is the book. After you read this book, what do you want people to take away from it? You know, I really hope that people will come to the book with an open mind. Because a lot of times, you know, when you write about race, right. there are some people that don't want to hear anything about it. Yeah, ah, why turn it off. That stuff? You just to- right. totally turn it off, right? So what I hope is, is people will come to the book with an open mind and, you know, really and, you know, read about the, the stories of these men and what they endured and, 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 and about how the league has changed and where we're at now and maybe gain an understanding that they didn't have coming in and, you know, maybe looking at things a little bit differently when they leave. Mm. He is Jason Reed. You can reach him on Twitter at J Reed ESPN, a great follow the senior NFL writer at the Anscape. The book is Rise of the Black Quarterback and What It Means for America. 
I can't wait till you do the uh, the college version of this one too. Yeah. Need to, <laughs> hey, it's a lot of brothers now making this NIL money. We're gonna have a different conversation about that one, Jay. Listen, I, I would love to do that one. So tell everybody you gotta buy this book if you want to see that yeah. one. Okay. We're gonna start that one first, and I'm already getting ready for book number two. Hey, Jay, exactly. so appreciate the time. I uh, can't wait to have you on again, man. Appreciate you, my man. Thank you so much. Uh, that was Jason Reed, the senior NFL writer over at the Enscape. More forward progress coming up next. You're listening to Sirius XM Radio. We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Well, I mean, a story that has been around for a while. Back on February 1st, the uh, former Dolphins uh, head coach, Brian Flores, he filed a lawsuit against the NFL and the Dolphins. The results of this investigation in terms of uh, what he said, the Dolphins intentionally tried to lose football games or wanted to lose football games. Mm -hmm. Um, The results of the investigation have concluded while the Dolphins engaged in something else, which was illegal tampering with Tom Brady, which is on a whole other story. Everybody was saying, but what about Flores? Because Flores has said he was clearly not pleased with the final result of the NFL's investigation. It seemed to kind of stand behind more on what the tampering charges against Tom Brady and or for Tom Brady and his ownership, but it's like, hold on, what about me? So he, I want to read this from this is from Coach Brian Flores. He says, Look, I am thankful that the NFL's investigator found my factual allegations against Stephen Ross are true. At the same time, I'm disappointed to learn that the investigator minimized Mr. Ross's offers and pressure to tank games, especially when I wrote and submitted a letter at the time to Dolphins executives documenting my serious concerns regarding this subject at the time, which the investigator has in her possession. While the investigator found that the Dolphins had engaged in impermissible tampering of unprecedented scope and severity, Mr. Ross will avoid any meaningful consequence. There is nothing more important when it comes to the game of football itself than the integrity of the game. But when the integrity of the game is called into question, Fans suffer and football suffer. In Flores' lawsuit, he alleges, again, that Stephen Ross offered him $100,000 per loss so that the Dolphins could improve their draft position. The NFL investigation found Ross's comments, I mean, here we go, found that the owner, Stephen Ross's comments about intentionally losing were not intended to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. I mean, the floor is yours, man. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I, I want to know if I can go to the airport and, you know, uh, this this is the bomb yeah. about something I'm eating. And, and if I could say, oh, it was not meant to, intended to be seriously. Words carry, uh, they carry meaning, carry power. And especially when you are speaking from a position of power, this isn't the director of basketball, uh, the director of football ops or the equipment manager. Right. Saying this, this is the man who owns the team, who, who cuts all the checks that everybody, get, uh, you know, receives. And by the way, uh, Coach Flores's testimony, which seems to mean have been confirmed by the investigator, right. this wasn't an isolated incident. This was an ongoing mm-hmm. conversation coming from the owner of the team about the need to sacrifice current wins for future draft position. Uh, and, you know, the, the idea that this is something that uh, perhaps he needed to incentivize employees to want to get behind that plan. 
what Coach Flores is talking about is two different things. Part of it is, you know, this jeopardizes the integrity of the game, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. Fans, uh, media, uh, the broadcasters, we want to believe that everything that we see in front of us are people doing their utmost to win. And to present it as anything other than that is almost is borderline fraudulent. The other part is, hey, man, this is my testimony. Go ahead. Look it up. And then they look it up and be like, yeah, everything he said was true. But they were just playing, man. Like that's playing. that's that's a wild response to something that done by an organization that throughout the investigation on the tampering side has been proven right. that they, this is not beyond them. If if they're willing to to almost bribe Tom Brady with an ownership stake in order for him to join the team, what's so far fetched about them offering a hundred grand per loss? Mm. I, I think that's what sticks out to me, though, is that how hard it is for a black coach already in the national football league. And now how hard did you work to get to this position? And then you're being offered, Hey, you have to do this because we want a better draft stop. Mm-hmm. We want to be able to draft the top and get this quarterback. Say, so, Hey, but that's not, that's not how I got here. What you're telling me is against everything that I fight for every single day. And I get why Brian Flores made this lawsuit because he said, look, I'm not fighting for myself. I'm fighting for the ones who are around me and after me that we don't want to endure in this. It's hard enough to get here and now I have to deal with this. And, and by the way, you might say even like, hey, that's it's against my credo or whatever. But on top of that, I'm the one that walks away with them L's on my record. So exactly. when for when I'm up for my next job, well, what was his record? Oh, he was four and twelve. They don't look at, well, they were trying to tank, guys. It was like, that wasn't his thing. It wasn't his coaching decision. They just stick that on you as, yeah, that means you're not a good coach. So they're jeopardizing his future employment and everyone else who has to go along with that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm I'm just, I'm still a a little bit angry about it. Like Coach said, his words, um, his accusations, his factual evidence were sort of minimized. And it was a situation where, is he being angry black coach? Because that's what they always say. He's a mm-hmm. fiery, angry black coach. But yet he's showing you the factual evidence. And yet it's been sort of glossed over because everybody's looking more at the Tom Brady, who's more of the shinier situation of, oh, they were trying to do this instead of really focus on the words of Brian Flores. And by the way, really quick, the totality of which the tampering and the uh, the tanking ends up with, Stephen Ross for the suspension to October? To October? It, it, a, dro- a drop in a bucket of a drop in a bucket. million? I mean, it, it, it is the most lukewarm milk toast punishment you could do for someone who's engaging on several levels, regardless of whether they took Brian Flores' words to be gospel or they glossed it over like they did. There's so much going on there, and for the punishment to be what it was, just just pitiful. Yeah. It's pitiful. It's pitiful. But we'll see. The fallout continues over all of this. The Dolphins and see where Brian Flores, who's now the linebacker coach with another black coach in the NFL, Mike Tomlin, in the Pittsburgh Steelers. Amin, it's been a blast, man. Always thanks for filling in for Jason. Uh, special thanks to Jason Reed, the senior NFL writer for the Ends game. Special thanks again to Pernell Brown, our producer. This is Kirk Morrison. We'll catch you next time right here on Forward Progress.